LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is Next Big Idea Classics. Today, the secret to building good habits and breaking bad ones. It's a new year, folks, and this year, we're going to try something a little different on the show. As you know, typically our guests are authors of new books, but lately we've been thinking, why limit ourselves? Why not look to the past? Why not give ourselves permission to sit down with the authors of the biggest books of the last few decades? So we're launching a new series which will be available right here in the Next Big Idea feed that we're calling Next Big Idea Classics. Here's the plan. Every few weeks, we're going to have on the show the author of a classic book, one that changed the conversation when it first came out and has since stood the test of time. We're going to ask these authors, why this book? Something happened here. You touched on something profoundly true or profoundly useful something that changed lives or changed the way we see ourselves, why did it have such an impact? And crucially, is it still relevant? Today, we're kicking off this new series with what may be the best-selling nonfiction book of the last decade, a book that was Amazon's top seller last year, despite being five years old, a book that has sold over 15 million copies. That's one every 11 seconds. The book is Atomic Habits, written by a guy named James Clear. And it's a book that, embarrassingly, I only just got around to reading. But let me tell you, folks, it's a good thing that I did. Because I am, as alert listeners of the show know, a fixer-upper. I have what HR departments tend to call growth opportunities. Maybe you do, too. Why are habits of such universal interest? Here's a guess, because habits work. As I like to say to my kids, habits are for lazy people, and you are lazy. I am too, we all are. We like to think of life as a contest of will. Men and women clenching their faces into fists as they do the impossible. It makes for great cinema. But in fact, we all have limited willpower. It's the small acts, good habits, compounded over time that produce most of the things we really care about, whether it's writing beautiful novels, getting into shape, building caring relationships, or setting the world record with a hula hoop. We know this. We know we should put our running shoes out the night before, delete the TikTok app. We should be expressing gratitude for indoor plumbing in the morning while we're brushing our teeth. And yet, we still struggle. It's the building of the habit that's the problem. Once it's in place, it's just an algorithm, a seamless workflow. It just happens. So why did this book, Atomic Habits, among the hundreds of books on habits available, blow up? That was my first question for James, and his response surprised me. I'll let James answer the question, but here's a sneak peek. James showed that forming good habits didn't have to hurt. It turns out that if you make small incremental changes, easy changes, the right way, you can produce dramatic results. Every action you take, James Clear tells us, 
is a vote for the person you wish to become. Let me say that one more time. Every action you take is a vote for the person you wish to become. I just love that. Let's see if this small action, listening to my conversation with James Clear, can trigger a series of other actions, both for me and for you. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. James Clear, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Hey, thank you so much. Thanks for having me and uh, pleasure to talk as always. James, I must be the last person that I know to read your book, which might make me like number 15 million and one. <laughs> Have you gotten to the point where it's surprising that someone has not read your book? It's still surprising to me that anybody has read it. It's like a minor miracle anyone's paying attention. So I'm perfectly happy to have you read now. And uh, you know anybody else is welcome to join whenever it makes sense for them. I've been really lucky and fortunate with how it's gone. And honestly, like from the very start, I just wanted to write something that was useful and that um, contributed to my little corner of the universe. And um, thankfully, the ideas and concepts have resonated and people have been able to take them and run with it and, you know, make their own habits and make their own changes and create their own things. And I, I think that's great. And being useful has really been the driving motive mm -hmm. the whole time. Well, it's been useful on a very large scale. And, you know, to put this in context, this is a kind of like once in a decade or quarter century phenomenon as far as book sales are concerned. There were a bunch of other books about habits before yours. Why do you think Atomic Habits has kind of defied the normal physics of, of book sales? Certainly, there's got to be some element of luck involved. But I do think that there are a few big things that also made a meaningful difference to the outcome. The first thing is you just mentioned there are a lot of books that have been written about habits. Well, actually, that's a very important threshold that a lot of books that do get published don't cross, which is, is the topic timeless and universal? And mm -hmm. I do think habits is a topic that is timeless and universal. There have been many people who've written about it before me, and there will be plenty of habit books after me. And I'm just trying to add my little bit of contribution to the pile. But the helpful thing is that I don't have to convince anybody that habits are important or that you yep. want to have good habits or that you want to break bad ones. All I have to convince you of is that if you're only going to read one book about it, Atomic Habits is the one to read. There's also an interesting dynamic with habits as a topic, which is that it's universal in the sense that we all have them, but your habits feel very individual. They feel like yours, not mine. And so everybody yeah. kind of has their own little version of it, of what it means to build their habits and which habits they're trying to create and focus on. And so it's really easy for it to feel like it has a lot of personal application to your life because of how tailored they are to your experience. So it's simultaneously universal mm -hmm. and individualized, which is, I think, again, something that's somewhat rare in terms of book topics. There were a lot of strategic decisions that I made about the book that I do think meaningfully impacted the outcome. So 
trying to make it highly practical. There were a lot of books that have been written about habits before that are a little more journalistic or they're kind of reporting on the phenomenon of habits or the science of habits. And that's all useful too. But what I ultimately care about is how do we apply it in our daily life? How do I make this actionable and practical? And, you know, we all want to get results in our life. And so I think if the book does genuinely help you do that, then you're in a position for a lot of people to be interested and to want to share it. And then the final thing that I'll, I'll say is that my packaging of the material is around small changes that make a big difference or scaling habits down and making them easy, but they can still lead to a remarkable result. And there is something nice about the idea of getting 1% better each day or trying to focus on a small behavior change, which is that it feels accessible. You know, it feels palatable. You're like, oh, this is maybe something I could actually stick to. I'm not asking you to change your whole life. I'm just asking you to make a small adjustment and then to trust that over time that can compound and transform into something greater. I'm embarrassed to say that I was late to catch the double entendre in the name Atomic Habits, right? Which is atomic means small. It also means explosive. I think there's actually, I so I always say like, I chose it because I can see like three meanings in it. So the, the oh, first meaning okay. is the word tiny or small, like an atom, and your habits should be small and easy to do. The second one, and the one that people often overlook is that atoms build into molecules and molecules build into compounds. And so the, it's like the fundamental unit of a larger system. Yes. And the way yep. that you mentioned earlier, you know, I kind of recommend not just making a single small change, but like many of them and collectively you create this system of yes. progress. And then the final meaning is what you just mentioned, which is like the source of immense energy or power. And I think if you understand those three meanings, you can kind of see the arc of the book, which is you start with changes that are small and easy to do and you layer them together like atoms in a molecule or units in a larger yep. system. And if you do that well, then you can get this really powerful, remarkable result in the long run. Yeah. And, and in that second meaning, there, there's also sort of the implication that everything we do is made up of habits, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, even, you know, the way we, the way we interact with other people in our lives, um, a lot of things that we think of as outside the realm of habits. I mean, I think I had previously thought of habits as more about, you know, health and fitness and, and, and work productivity, but sure, you know, but there's this argument in that second meaning of, of atomic that everything's built out of, out of these behaviors, really. Well, certainly not everything in life is a habit, but everything yeah. in life is touched by your habits or is right. influenced by them. Um, and uh, they have a very dramatic effect on the lifestyle that you end up living. Now, the suggestion that it's atomic bomb of potential, <laughs> of potential impact is a big one, of course. And, and this is based upon this notion that, as you say, habits are the compound interest of self-improvement. Now, compound interest, as we know, is subtle at first, but delivers exponential returns over time. Do you think it's overstating it to say that the returns on habit modification are exponential, or, or you think that's a, a fair statement? Well, in a mathematical sense, your habits are not like a formula. You know, it's not like you can just plug your life into yeah. an equation and, you know, spit out a result. But conceptually, or, you know, in some kind of like uh, broader philosophical sense, Certainly, what you just described, compound interest starts out small and then compounds into something much more meaningful over time. We see that sort of pattern all the time with your habits, you know, like yeah. the person who reads for 10 minutes today. Well, reading for 10 minutes today does not make you a genius, but over a 10 or 20 or 30 year period, the person who is always learning something new or going to bed a little bit smarter than they were when they woke up. Yeah, that can be a pretty meaningful difference in wisdom and insight. 
So you see the same pattern again and again throughout life, which is the daily action that seems pretty insignificant, relatively easy to dismiss, pretty small. It compounds, it transforms into something much greater over time. So time will magnify whatever you feed it. If you have good habits, then time becomes your ally. And every day that goes by, you kind of put yourself in a stronger position. And if you have bad habits, time becomes your enemy. And every day that goes by, you dig the hole a little bit deeper. And so what I'm really trying to get across when I talk about habits being the compound interest of self-improvement is an emphasis on trajectory rather than position. You know, there's a lot of discussion about position in life. What's the number on the scale? How much money's in the bank account? What's the current stock price? What are the quarterly earnings? We have all these ways of measuring our current position. And then if we aren't where we wanted to be or we haven't achieved what we set out to achieve, we feel guilty or start to judge ourselves or we feel bad because we haven't achieved what we set out to achieve yet. And what I'm encouraging is to say, listen, you know, measurement can be useful, but just for a minute, can we stop worrying so much about our current position and instead focus a little bit more on our current trajectory? Are we getting 1% better or 1% worse? Are your habits leading you on an upward path or are you flatlining? And if you're on a good trajectory, then all you need is time. So uh, this idea of small habits adding up and compounding into something more is not necessarily like a mathematical argument, but I do think yeah, that it is yeah. a, a philosophy or an approach that resonates with real life experience and what we all have seen in how our daily actions add up into something much greater over time. Well, let's get into the mechanics of how we can improve our habits. And James, I'm happy to offer myself as a guinea pig. Okay. And one habit I want to adopt is journaling every morning. You know, and this is something I have literally been trying to do for like 20 years, right? I've been, I, I get into these modes of like, I'm like, oh yeah. I mean, and, and every time I do it, I take 20, 30 minutes to journal in the morning and I'm yeah, like, this sure. is fantastic. I should do this every day. And I've had periods of doing it for like, you know, little spurts of enthusiasm two or three times a week for a couple months. And then it sort of fade, fades away. So how do I make this a a daily habit. Okay. So uh, let me lay out the framework and then we can talk about some practical considerations. So, you know, in Atomic Habits, I talk about there's basically four ways that you can, or four things you can do if you want to help shape a habit. And I call them the four laws of behavior change. Now, you don't need all four of these things to happen at the same time, but the more of them that you have working for you, the better positioned you are to follow through on a good habit. So, from a, a quick overview, the first law is to make it obvious. So you want the cues of your habits to be obvious, available, visible, easy to see. The second law is to make it attractive. So the more attractive or appealing, the more engaging or fun a habit is, the more likely you are to feel compelled to do it. The third law is to make it easy. So the easier, more convenient, frictionless, simple a habit is, the more likely it is to be performed. And then the fourth and final law is to make it satisfying more satisfying or enjoyable habit is, the more that you have some kind of like positive emotional experience with it, the more likely you are to return to it in the future. So make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. So if you're sitting there, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, you know, I have a habit that I keep procrastinating on, like I just wish I could get started on it, or maybe kind of similar to what you just said, Rufus, you know, oh, I, I do this every now and then, or I've done it in fits and starts, but I've never kind of been consistent with it. You can just go through those four laws and ask yourself, how can I make the behavior more obvious? How can I make it more attractive? How can I make it easier? How can I make it more satisfying? And the answers to those questions will reveal different steps that you can take to increase the odds that the behavior is going to occur. So let's take your journaling example. 
So if we talk about the first law, make it obvious, this can mean a couple different things, but it mostly it's about structuring your physical environment to make it obvious when and where the behavior is going to occur. So you could start by buying a journal and then choosing mm -hmm. a spot where that's going to occur. So is there a seat at the table or a chair in the corner of the room where you're going to sit and that's going to become the journaling chair? And the more clearly that space is defined, the more obvious it is, the more that this is the one thing that happens here and I don't do anything else there, the more mm -hmm. likely it is that you start to tie that behavior to that space. And there have been a couple of research studies that have shown that it's easier to build a new habit if it's the only thing that's happening in that space, because you're not like competing with all the other things that happen. For example, let's say that um, your couch at 8 p.m. is where you normally watch Netflix. And if you say, well, after dinner, now I'm going to sit down, I'm going to try to journal on the couch without even really thinking about it. You're kind of subconsciously pulled to grabbing the remote and turning on the TV because that's what usually happens there. Whereas even mm -hmm. if you're in the same room, but you set a separate you know, space for it, a, a chair in the corner or something, you don't usually sit there to watch TV. And so it can be a little more clean that you sit down and this is where you do the journaling. So that's the first law. Make it obvious. Yeah. Second law, make it attractive. I think the key question to ask yourself here and whether it's journaling or any other habit that we're talking about is what would this look like if it was fun? What would it look like if this was enjoyable to me? The most common New Year's resolution is do something like exercise or go to the gym. And mm -hmm. I kind of feel like a lot of people go to the gym in January because they think they should go to the gym or that society wants them to go to the gym or something. But we could come up with a very long list of what it means to live an active lifestyle, you know, rock climb, do yoga, kayak, whatever. Like, yep. and you should come up with that list and then pick the version of an exercise habit that feels most fun to you. That feels most attractive. Totally. To um, so in the case of journaling, I can very easily see how someone could get in the mindset of, well, for it to matter, for this to count, I need to write a full page every day or something like that. But right. let's come up with something fun. Maybe the fun version is that you journal one sentence each day and that's easy and accessible and you can do it even if you forgot about it all day and you're getting ready to climb in bed at the end of the night. Uh, maybe that sounds, maybe it's small enough that it sounds kind of like a game or that it sounds fun to you. Or maybe the fun version is that you don't just journal off the cuff or, you know, whatever you're thinking at the time, you have a journaling prompt that you always answer, or you have a rotating yeah. series of questions that gets you started. But whatever it is, like you should pick some version of that that feels appealing to you. I like the idea that that's a very individual thing, that, that the, the characteristic that makes a given habit attractive it's different for each individual. So for instance, like for me, for the past few weeks, I've had a better run with the journaling. I've up to like, I've been mm -hmm. up to like three or four days a week. And it's been partly because I actually love the free writing exercise of just like write anything. Mm -hmm. And then I try to follow that with some intentions about my day. Yep. And and who do, who do I need to be to accomplish those intentions? But the free writing for me is fun. And if I pair that with a hot cup of coffee, which I love, <laughs> right? And yeah. The, the, now I've got a I've got an attractive bundle to start with. And then I guess making it shorter, initially having lower expectations about sort of the the length of the exercise 
maybe that fits into making it both attractive and, and easy. And easy, sure. And you see, you will see that some of the things we talk about, they start to overlap. Like it, it, yeah. a certain change may make something both obvious and easy. And so that's, you know, the first and the third law. But your hot cup of coffee is an interesting one. I just want to double click on that for a second. So this is a strategy that I mentioned in the book, but it, it originally came from Katie Milkman, who's a researcher uh, at yeah. um, Wharton. And, um, you know, her idea is what I, she calls temptation bundling. And you... You combine something that you want to do. So in mm -hmm. your case, drink a hot cup of coffee. That's something that sounds nice to you with something that you need to do. So in this case, the journaling habit. And by combining those two things together, you're instantly making journaling more attractive. It's the thing that happens when I get yep. to have coffee. Okay, so that's make it obvious, make it attractive. Third law, make it easy. Journaling one sentence a day is an obvious example of that. Uh, you know, like you're trying to scale it down so that it's not intimidating. And I think my little measure for this or my little strategy is what I call the two-minute rule. If you want to make your habits easy, just follow the two-minute rule, which says take whatever habit you're trying to build and scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. So read 30 books a year becomes read one page or do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. And the more that you can scale it down and optimize it like that, the easier it becomes and you don't have as much friction or baggage associated with showing up and doing the behavior. And and you say you can even narrow it down to two minutes, right? That you could literally like go to the gym, do one set of squats and leave. I, I had a reader right. who did this. Yeah. So I, I mentioned this guy, his name is Mitch. He lost over a hundred pounds and he's kept it off for more than a decade now. But when he first started going to the gym, like the first six weeks, he had this strange little rule for himself where he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he would get in the car, drive to the gym, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it sounds ridiculous, but what you yeah, realize yeah. is that he was mastering the art of showing up. You know, he was becoming the type of person that went to the gym four days a week, even if it was only for five minutes. And this is something that I think a lot of people sort of fail to realize, which is a habit must be established before it can be improved. You know, it has to become the mm -hmm, standard in mm -hmm. your life before you scale it up and optimize it and turn it into something more. You need to standardize before you optimize. So I'm always reminded of that quote from Ed Lattimore, where he says, the heaviest weight at the gym is the front door. Like... There are a lot of things in life that are like that, you know? I love there are that. A lot of th the starting is the hard part. And so if you can scale it down and use strategies like the two-minute rule, you can master the art of showing up and gain a foothold and then advance from there. Yeah, no, I had the same response hearing the two-minute rule initially. I was like, that's crazy, you know, <laughs> to drive to the gym and do a two-minute workout. But I can see that it actually it actually re reverses the, the sense of onus the sense of obligation you have to to do this this big thing, and you start to think, hey, hey, I'm here. Why don't I build on this? And this notion that starting something is the hardest part, as you say, that the door is the heaviest weight. Opening the door is the heaviest weight to lift in the gym. Uh, that really resonates for me, right? That it's just we just have to we have to make starting easier. Yeah, it's easier to optimize something you're already doing than it is to start something that you haven't done yet. And so if you can just get started, there are tons of options for optimizing and improving. And um, the key is making it as easy as possible to start. So if I yep. could only give one of these four laws, I, I think all four are helpful and all four work really well. But if I could only pick one, I would pick make it easy. Um, because Interesting. The, the frictionlessness of it, scaling it down and uh, making it easier to show up and get a small win 
and start to fe- have a feeling of progress, even if it's less than what you ultimately hope to do, that is an upward cycle and it will feed itself. And so making it easy to get started is a fantastic place to focus and, and uh, think about if you're trying to build a new habit. Okay, so final law now, make it satisfying. This is just about reward and making sure that you have some positive emotional experience with what you're doing. And sometimes it could mean an external reward. Like if I don't miss a workout for a week, then I get to take a bubble bath or go for a walk in the woods or something. Or, um, you know, you could do the same sort of thing with journaling. And external rewards can be helpful for the short term. They can, you know, kind of make the experience more enjoyable. In the long run, I think the real reward, the real satisfaction we're going for is that doing this habit reinforces the type of person I want to be. And so like in my case, when I go mm-hmm. and work out, I can be, I want to be the kind of person who doesn't miss workouts. And so as long as I'm doing my first set, I can feel good about it. You know, we, we play this game with ourselves a lot of the time where we kind of promise that we can be happy once we achieve something, or we'll give ourselves to permission to be satisfied once we've built the habit or stuck to the thing or achieved a certain result. And I think if you can start to draw this connection between your habits and who you are and see how those things match up, you can feel happy in the moment. You don't have to promise yourself happiness in the future. You can just feel good about the fact that you're showing up and being the kind of person you want to be. Interesting. Yeah. So, so the identity is, is part of the reward. One habit that I have successfully developed in the last, you know, 20 years kind of accidentally is running. So I, I didn't used to like to run. I'd, I'd, I'd force myself to do it a couple days a week. I now run seven days a week. Right. And I, and if I don't, I feel this kind of hunger. I feel deprived if I don't do the morning run. So how did this happen? I, I realized that I kind of somewhat accidentally fell into some, some of the recommendations in the book, which is I started by giving myself permission to listen to um, audiobooks or um, podcasts that I love while running. And then I look forward to the run because I'm looking forward to listening to the, to the podcast or the audiobook. I also gave myself permission to take a paper cup of coffee and walk for the first quarter mile with a mm-hmm. cup of coffee and just take in the sunshine and the, and the neighborhood right before, before running. And I also gave myself permission to, if I, had, if I only had 15 minutes, I was a tight schedule that day, I'd just go and do a series of sprints. I'd be done in 12 minutes. And then I have this reward of like the shower. And of course, the thing with something like exercise and particularly cardio exercise, I think, is that that kind of runner's high you get sure. is itself part of the reward. Oh, there's, there's such beautiful examples. The um, there, there are a couple of things that stood out to me there. So the walk with the paper cup of coffee before the run, that is such an interesting little entry point. You know, there's this momentum is a huge thing in life. You, you sit on the couch and you don't move very much. And so you're kind of low energy and you feel like moving even less, or you take a step, you walk outside with a cup of coffee for a quarter of a mile and you turn a couple blocks and then all of a sudden you feel like throwing the coffee down and going for a run. So that's a lovely little entry point. Um, the hot shower as a reward, I can totally see that. And that's a, what a delightful way to like end the experience. I have heard this from many readers and I always think it's such a, if uh, I consider it to be a piece of affirmation, which is you just said, I kind of stumbled into some of these things without reading the book or whatever. I think that's great. Like that is such a proof of concept. To me, the ultimate test of an idea is does it work in real life? 
And, you know, of course, I want the things I write about to be scientifically grounded and for them to work in the lab and all that, too. But we don't live in a lab. We live in real life. And if it can work in the real world and as people come up to me and they say, oh, you know, I read this book and I just had never quite heard it put that way, but I've been doing this for years with my marathon training. Or I always thought that too, but I just didn't have a language to describe it. That to me, those are some of the best pieces of feedback because I'm like, oh, good. People who are out there like doing it, this is how they do it too. Um, So anyway, thanks for sharing those examples. And also once you know how, (laughs) you know, what the sequence of steps were that made that work, it's easier to apply it to the next habit you want to develop. Um, and, and another thing I've sort of stumbled into is um, is what you call habit stacking, right? Which is I'll get back from my run, take the shower, and then I'm in the habit of, you know, doing three hours of really focused morning work. Then I have a healthy lunch. And then after that, James, it all falls apart. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you got a good half day. Yeah, so habit stacking is a really powerful strategy. This originally comes from BJ Fogg, who's a professor at Stanford. And he he had this interesting insight, which I, I think is great, which is that it's often easier to stick to a habit if you link it to a habit you're already doing. So let's take something you're already doing. So say, make a cup of coffee every morning. And then let's take a new habit that you want to build. So for example, um, let's say you'd like to start meditating. Your habit stack could be, After I make my morning cup of coffee, I will meditate for 60 seconds. And it's a very clear space to insert the new behavior into your life. One of the things that's a challenge for a lot of people is they kind of wake up and they sort of have a vague notion of, I, you know, I hope I feel motivated to work out today, or I hope I feel motivated to write today. And there's no clear and obvious place where the habit's going to live. And so um, by stacking your behaviors on top of each other, you make it very explicit when you're going to do this. And then once you get good at it, you can start to chain them together. So you can say, after I make my morning cup of coffee, I will meditate for 60 seconds. After I meditate for 60 seconds, I will write my to-do list for the day. After I write my to-do list for the day, I'll prioritize them. Uh, And then after I prioritize them, I'll start working on the first one. And so, you know, you're like six minutes into your day and you've already knocked four or five things off your list and it feels like you're moving forward. You have some momentum carrying you into the next thing. And you can utilize little stacks like that, you know, at the beginning of the day, you could do a lot of people have one start the day. Maybe um, when they get to the office, there's kind of like a series of things that they do to kick the workday off. You might have another set at the end of the day to power down or, um, you know, some kind of routine to wrap up after dinner. So you can use them whenever you find it useful. And it's just a really nice way to get a little bit of momentum going in the right direction. I love this um, this phrase, temptation bundling, that you mentioned earlier. I was going to give you credit for it, but you gave the credit to Katie Melkman. Because who doesn't want to bundle temptations? I mean, one temptation is great. Multiple temptations is even better. And <laughs> I, I, I have one example of this in my own life, which is I normally just run like a mile and a half to two miles in the morning. I get, I get a few sprints in there because it's just really time efficient. But on Saturdays and sometimes Sundays, I'll run three or four miles. And I, I have a a treat, which is when, when possible, I have a, a, a buddy who lives in the West Village and I, I run up to his apartment and we have tea and then I run back. And so it's like, it's twice as long as my normal run, but I'm bundling the temptation of listening to a podcast or book that I love, visiting a good friend and having tea. And, and, and it, it just, I really look forward to those, those Saturday mornings. 
What a cool habit. What a great way to spend a morning. I mean, just so much, such a better use of time than what a lot of people, myself included, are often doing on a morning. You know, you get exercise in, you get outside, you get to listen to a book that you like, you get social connection, hang out with a friend that you love, and then you get to come back and do it again and finish with a hot shower like that. I don't know. That just sounds like in one of one of the most ideal ways to start a day. Let's review. There are four things you need to do if you want to build a new habit. Number one, make it obvious. If you want to get into shape, don't stash your running shoes in the back of your closet. Put them where you can see them. Let them remind you of the new habit you're trying to form. Number two, make it attractive. Another way to think about this is to ask yourself, what's the fun way to do this? Sticking with the running example, maybe instead of going to the gym and pounding out mindless miles on the treadmill, you jog to your favorite coffee shop and reward yourself with an oat milk latte. That's making it attractive. Number three, make it easy. This one's easy. Don't try too much too soon. If you're getting back into running, you don't need to run a marathon on day one. You're better off following the two minute rule. How do you scale this new habit down to something that only takes two minutes? Finally, number four, make it satisfying. Give yourself rewards. Did you go for a short run every day this week? Good for you. Treat yourself to a bubble bath. Obvious, easy, attractive, and satisfying. Tick these boxes and you'll be on your way to forming a habit that sticks. But what if instead of forming a good new habit, you want to break a bad old one? James has the answer when we come back. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Let's talk about how to get rid of bad habits, which I understand some of the same principles could be inverted. And once again, I will heroically offer my own bad habits, James, <clears throat> as, a, <laughs> as, as, as material here which is a, 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 a habit that I got into unwittingly in the last couple of decades was drinking a glass of wine or two each night and, and better yet, a glass of bourbon. And of course, there was a wonderful time, I might remind you like 15 or 20 years ago, in my defense, when we thought that was good for us, <laughs> right? There was a bunch of stuff. It was like 33, you know, there was a New York Times article, you know, uh, one to two drinks a night for a, a guy my size would reduce your risk of heart disease by 33%. I had it framed on the wall. You know, I was, <laughs> I, I loved it. Um, but of course, more recently, we've learned that this is, is not helpful. And I've been studying my sleep patterns and I know it's not helping my sleep, right? So how can I reduce my, my drinking habit? Okay. So we talked about building a good habit, make it obvious, attractive, easy, satisfying. If you want to break a bad habit, then you just invert those four. So make it um, invisible, unattractive, difficult, and unsatisfying. 
Now, again, there are many ways to do each of these things. So let's say uh, in the case of, you know, drinking less wine, making it invisible could be as drastic as keeping it out of the house and not buying it. So that obviously is less likely to see it. But you also could just- That seems really rash. That that seems like an extreme measure, James. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But you also could just position it in a way that you're less likely to see it. You know, right now you might have the wine bottles out on the counter or in some kind of display or stand, and you could tuck them away in a cabinet or put them in the pantry or something, you know, somewhere that's more hidden. Yeah. And you would think that that might not matter that much, but let me give you two personal examples for me. So the first one's drinking related. I've noticed if I buy a six pack of beer, and I put it in the front of the fridge, like in the door or something where I can see it as soon as I open it up, I'll grab one and drink it with dinner just because it's there. But if I tuck it like on the lowest shelf, put it like all the way in the back and then I kind of got to bend down to see it. Sometimes I will forget that I bought it. It'll be there for two, three, four weeks. I won't even remember that it's in there. And, um, so often what you find is just a little bit of friction, making it a little bit invisible is enough to curtail the habit. A similar one that I think we all can resonate at some level with. So let's take our smartphones. Mm -hmm. If I have my phone next to me, I'm like everybody else. You know, I'll check it every three minutes just because it's there. But if I, you know, I have a home office. So I have this little rule for myself where I try. I can't do it every day, but I probably do it seven out of 10 days or something. I leave my phone in another room until lunch. And I, I have a home office, so it's only 30 seconds away. You know, like if I wanted to go get it, I could just walk down the stairs and grab it, but I never go get it. And I always think like, isn't that interesting? On the one hand, I wanted it so bad that I would check it every three minutes when it was next to me. Yeah. Yeah. But on the other hand, I never wanted it badly enough that I would work 30 seconds to go get it. And you find that a lot of habits are like that. If you just introduce a little bit of distance, you make them a little yep. bit invisible, they often reduce themselves. You know, it's, it's a little bit of an approach of, of parenting ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> right. Sure. Like, like, like we, we do these things to restrict screen time and, you know, to help our children develop healthy habits. And, and maybe we need to treat ourselves as children to some degree because Definitely. we are. I mean, I think one of the challenges, especially with phones, is that they are both useful and unuseful. It is the blending of their, they're so powerful and helpful. That's why we all want them and they make us productive and help us connect with our loved ones. And, you know, it's awesome to be able to do a lot of the things that you can do with it, but it also is very unhelpful. And I think we all have this sense that maybe we use it more than we would like to, even though we benefit from it in other ways. And so I'm trying to find ways to parent myself so that I can use the features that I love and that bring a lot of value to me. And I feel good about in the long run and maybe ignore some of the ones where I feel like, man, I've probably gave up an hour today just doing a bunch of stuff that I didn't even really need to do. So parenting yourself is kind of an interesting skill that we all need to develop now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so we can invert these four laws for the purpose of getting rid of bad habits. I mean, making bourbon unsatisfying is a tall order in my opinion. Sure. But what I've done is I've said, okay, I, I, during the week, I'm not allowed, I, I can't drink bourbon at all. I, I can only have a little bit of wine, which I don't like as much as the bourbon. <laughs> so that helps. <laughs> and then I started to move the wine several days a week to chamomile tea, you know, mm. which is which I probably don't like quite as much as the wine. <laughs> well, so this is a good thing too, which is um, there are three ways that you can break a habit. So you could eliminate it. So you just cut it out cold turkey, be like, I'm never going to drink yeah. wine again. You could reduce it. So that's kind of what I mentioned with like leaving the phone in another room until lunch or putting the beer on the bottom shelf of the fridge. I'm fine still drinking a beer or checking my phone, but I just don't want to do it as much. And then the third thing you can do is you can substitute. 
so you can replace it. And replacing the wine with chamomile tea is a good example of that. And what you often find is that you may need a combination of strategies because most of the habits that you're performing they benefit you in some way. You like you get you're getting something out of the experience, even if there's also a downside that you don't like. And so that part that you are getting out of it, the way in which it's serving you, you might need some other outlet for that energy. For me personally, part of what helps in making things unattractive or attractive is understanding the mechanism scientifically of of how certain things are good for me or bad for me. So example, we had a conversation recently with with Chris Van Tullican about ultra-processed foods that went deep into exactly how ultra-processed foods, you know, mess with your microbiome, which, you know, (laughs) screws with everything from your mood to your longevity to your immune system. And now anytime I take a bite into a, a Dorito, I'm thinking about that mechanism, like exactly how that happens. So for me anyway, this kind of like scientific exploration of these topics really helps me uh, have more positive or negative associations with these behaviors. Definitely. The second law, make it attractive or make it unattractive in the case of breaking a bad habit, is all about interpretation. It's about the cues that you see throughout life, whether it's a Dorito or a cookie on the counter or the phone in your pocket and the meaning that you assign to those things. And before you educate yourself or learn something new about an experience, maybe you have one meaning that you associate with a Dorito, which might in this case be, oh, this is tasty and enjoyable and kind of fun to eat. And then you get this new piece of education, this new lens to view things with. And now every time you see one, you think you have a different interpretation. And so what used to be attractive is now less attractive because you've changed the way that you view that cue in the world. And so make it attractive can be, that can be done in many ways ways or make it unattractive can be done in many ways. And education is one good way that you can alter the way that you view the cues in your life. Well, and so, and so when we talk about, about habit stacking and, and building a system of habits and how that system can kind of come together, you say that we shouldn't focus on goals. Instead, we should focus on our system. This idea that we shouldn't focus on goals is one of the more counterintuitive claims in Atomic Habits for me, you know, because we've we've all thought for years, right? Like, write your goals in big letters and put them on the wall, and you know, we should be driven by goals. Why sure. shouldn't we focus on goals? Well, so first, I should say this is coming from someone who's very goal oriented, right? So I, I've set goals for all <laughs> yeah, kinds of yeah. things in my life, you know, weights I wanted to lift in the gym, or grades I wanted to get in school, numbers I wanted to hit in my business, like all sorts of stuff. And I had this funny thing happen a couple years ago. I came across this old page in a notebook that I had, and it was from about, I think it was from 11 years earlier. Was when, So I was reading a, a page that it was 11 years old. And I had written a bunch of goals on it about things that I wanted to do at the time. Mm. And looking back on it with that amount of distance was interesting because I had achieved some of them, but most of them I hadn't. And one of my first thoughts was, well, clearly writing the goal down wasn't the thing that made the difference. You know, like if that would have mattered, I just would have hit them all. And what I came to realize was that the ones that I made progress on were the ones that I had some kind of system for that. I had some sort of collection of habits oriented toward and the ones that I didn't, I just, it was a hope. It was a wish. It was a goal, but it wasn't anything that I had something to back it up. And there's this interesting dynamic and I'm kind of describing it in myself here, but you see it in many different areas of life, which is the people who succeed and the people who struggle 
the winners and the losers in any given area, they often have the same goals. So take any any Olympian, you know, presumably every Olympian at the uh, Olympic Games has the goal of winning the gold medal. The goal is not the thing that determines the outcome. Or if you have a job opening and 100 people apply for the job, presumably every candidate has the goal of getting the job. So goals are common and prevalent and pretty easy. Like I'm an author, right? So I could set a goal to sell 100 million books. The goal took me three seconds. Like the goal is not the hard part. It's building a system of behaviors, a collection of habits that carries you toward that outcome. And so if I was going to put like a little finer point on the language here, what do I mean by goal and system? Your goal is your desired outcome, the target, the thing you're shooting for. What is your system? It's the collection of daily habits that you follow. And if there is ever a gap between your goal and your system, if there's ever a difference between your desired outcome and your daily habits, your daily habits will always win. So whatever system you've been running, whatever collection of habits you've been following for the last, I don't know, let's say six months or a year or two years, it's carried you almost inevitably to the outcomes that you have right now. Now, that does not mean that habits are the only thing that matter in life. Like certainly there are other factors at play, strategy, luck, randomness, so on. But by definition, luck and randomness are not under your control and your habits are. And the only reasonable, rational approach in life is to focus on the elements of the situation that are within your control. And I think we all have seen this to varying degrees, but a lot of the time your results in life are a lagging measure of your habits. You know, your knowledge is a lagging measure of your reading and learning habits. Your bank account is a lagging measure of your financial habits. Even little stuff like the amount of clutter in your garage or your living room is a lagging measure of your cleaning habits. And we also badly want better results in life. You know, we also badly want better outcomes. But the somewhat ironic thing is that the outcomes are not actually the thing that needs to change. It's like fix the inputs and the outputs will fix themselves. Design better habits, build a better system, and you'll be carried naturally to a different destination. So the last thing I'll say here is that goals can be useful. It's not that they don't serve a purpose, right? They're good for clarity. They're good for setting a sense of direction. They're good for knowing what you're optimizing for. And what you often find is that goals can help drive people forward, especially in the short run. Like maybe you sign up for a 5K and the goal of running that race is what gets you to train for a couple months. But then the race goes by. And you turn around and it's been three months since you've run again. Yeah. And you're like, oh, you know, you kind of get in this yo-yo pattern. And so where I've kind of come down on this is that goals are good for people who care about winning once. Systems are best for people who care about winning repeatedly. And if you really want to make progress in the long run, you're going to need some collection of habits, some system or process to carry you there. And I'm setting this up kind of like a dichotomy, right? We have goals and we have systems, but ultimately, of course, what we really want is both. We want an alignment between your desired outcome, your goal, and your daily habits, your system. And I think for whatever reason, we tend to focus too much on the goal and our hopes and wishes and dreams and not nearly enough on the system and the collection of habits that can get us there. And if you have to pick one, if you have to pick either goals or or system, you, you, you want to pick the system. Um, you, you have a great line. You don't rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your system. And, and there's another observation you make, James, in the book that that really resonated for me, which is that goals restrict happiness. You know, and I, it seems to me that's partly because of this 
a lot of people I know who've been successful have the problem of the of the receding goalpost. You know, hmm. <laughs> like your goal is I'm going to write a book. You know, uh, and you write the and, and and in your mind you think once I've written the book I'll be a guy who's written the book and that's just going to completely transform my life and you know. You publish the book and you feel the same, <laughs> right? And, so it's a, and then and then you set another goal and another goal, and there there's something about kind of goal realization that is less satisfying than we think it will be. We sort of are infinitely promising to ourselves that we'll be happy when I'll be happy if I've achieved this thing, or I'll give myself permission to feel satisfied once this is done. And uh, I think that is another reason to fall in love with the system and the process, which is that if you're focused on that, you can feel good about yourself anytime the system is running. You don't have to wait for the long-term result uh, in order to feel satisfied or to give yourself permission to be happy in the moment. And certainly there will be a great moment of joy if and when the goal is achieved. And that that's wonderful, but we don't need to restrict it from ourselves. If you're always thinking that happiness is somewhere far off, whether that's if I lived in a different place or if I had achieved something else, or once I get done with this project, then it will continue to elude you. But if you look for the small ways that happiness can be here and now that I can feel good about the craft I'm working on right now, or the way I'm spending my time today, or the place that I live or the people that I'm sharing this moment with, rather than the yearning or the hoping or wishing for something better in the future, then you can find a way to be satisfied and continue to work and grow day in and day out. Yeah, yeah. It, it, Gary Kasparov has a line about about system mindset versus outcome mindset. Uh, I think of this like in, in the context of poker. Like you want to play your hand the very smartest way you can without knowledge of, of, of what your opponents hold. So you might you might lose, but if you played it the best way you could have played it, then that's the win. Opposed to if you're focused on the outcome, yep. that might just be a result of luck. And you might win, but maybe you're playing a weak player. And so the question is like, <laughs> did right. you get did you get away with something that you shouldn't have done? Yeah. Or did you did you actually play it the best way that you could? When each of us looks holistically at our lives and 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 think about, you know, what needs improvement, um, you know, you pointed out that like, you know, this can be applied to losing weight, getting more exercise, you know, better financial habits to be growing assets rather than eroding them, you know, learning, you know, your messy house, which is a lagging measure, as you say, of your cleaning habits. <laughs> Do you think that this, that, that habit change applies to most areas of our lives? I think that it does. Um, but that there's a second thing that is important to consider, which is your strategy. So, we can talk about the mechanics of habits all day long, and that's very good and helpful, and it's crucial to understand what it is that you could be doing. And I always kind of say, like, there is no one way to build better habits. There are many ways, and my job is to sort of lay all the tools out on the table. And once you have a full tool belt, you're in a much better position to decide which strategy might make sense for you in a given situation. And certainly knowing those things is very helpful. But there is still a second question, which is, which habits should I be focused on? Or where should I be directing my energy and attention? I know how to build habits, but which ones are worth my attention and precious time? And I would say that's more a question of strategy. Um, and so if you can have a good combination of strategy and execution of habits and choices, then you're in a really powerful position. Uh, but it, so it's not only about habits, but I do think it is all influenced by habits. 
Can you share with us, James, what are you working on now? And, and do, you, do you have any bad habits? I mean, I think it might be therapeutic for our listeners <laughs> to hear about your bad habits. I mean, we, we wouldn't want people thinking that you're perfect. Yeah. So uh, one of these, the funny things that happens is that when you write a book about habits, people kind of assume that you have your habits dialed in. But yeah. it actually was the opposite. The reason that I wrote the book is because I needed to know about the material and wanted to learn how, about these things. My publisher once told me we write the books we need and she's exactly yeah, totally. right. You know, like I wrote yeah. it because I was interested in it and I struggle with all the same things. You know, do I procrastinate? Sure. All the time. Am I focused too much on the goal and not enough on the system? Yes, of course. Like it's a reminder to myself, you know? So there are many, many habits that I've, you know, have struggled to build and so on. One thing that, um, that I've been working on recently is habits related to nutrition. And mm -hmm. I'll just offer a, a short little story here to illustrate something I think is important. So I tried a bunch of different things. You know, I um, tried different types of eating. I tried getting some meals delivered or pre-made for me. I worked this one service that would freeze a bunch of meals. Then I would just warm those up. And I was thinking, no, maybe I'll be able to stick to a better calorie requirement because of that. Um, I downloaded my fitness pal and used that. I didn't even use it for a full uh, day. I used it for one meal. And I was like, man, this is a pain in the ass. There's no way I'm going to do this all the time. Um, so I tried a bunch of strategies and eventually about three years later, what ended up working was I hired a coach. He sends me one email a week and I use a spreadsheet to track what I'm eating. And once I had loaded like my 20 or 25 most common meals into the sheet, it became very easy to track. I could just copy and paste whenever I was doing it. Um, and that probably covered like 80% of the things that I was eating. And so for whatever reason, that combination of things worked for me. And the reason I share this story is because whenever you are building habits, there needs to be some willingness to self-experiment, to try things. You know, as I mentioned, there is no one way to do this. There are many tools in the tool belt, and it may take you a little while to figure out what strategy to use. It's not like I didn't know what to do, right? I wrote a book about habits. I knew how it was supposed to work, but I still needed three years or so to figure out a version that worked for me. And so if you try something and it doesn't work out, a lot of people unfortunately jump straight to this place of negative self-talk where they're like, oh, see, I knew I wasn't going to be able to stick with this. I always fail at that. Or I knew this wasn't going to work out. My encouragement would be to tell yourself, that's not what this has to mean. Okay. It doesn't, we don't have to turn it in or blow it up into something much greater. It doesn't need to be an assignment of your self-worth. It doesn't need to be some bigger problem. It doesn't need to be an indication that you'll always fail with habits. It can just be a strategy that you tried that for whatever reason didn't happen to work right now. And we can move on to something else to try and see if that serves us. You know, there's that age old advice of try, try, try again. I actually think we should adjust it a little bit to be try, try, try differently. But if you mm. keep trying and you keep trying different lines of attack and different approaches, eventually you're probably going to stumble on one that works well for you. And so there has to be some persistence and willingness to evolve and self-experiment that is naturally mixed in with the practical nature of all these habit-building strategies. You talked earlier about the power of habits and identity, which I think is, is so interesting. Maybe my favorite quote in the book is, every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. I actually uh, shared that line with my kids. I think it's, I think it's so great. And, uh, you know, you say later, the, the process of building habits is actually the process of becoming yourself. 
Um, and, and, and so there's an interesting question here as to, to what extent we want to assume the identity of the person that we're attempting to become sooner because it makes, it makes the habits easier to, to adopt. Um, on the other hand, we need to often see evidence that we are the person right? <laughs> who's, who's assumed these new habits in order to believe that it's true. So which comes first, the, a, change, a change in your identity that makes habit change easier or the habits change that then causes us to believe that we've changed our identity? Well, it's a two-way street. So behaviors yeah. can influence your beliefs, uh, your actions change what you think about yourself, but what you believe and the thoughts you carry around also shape the choices and actions that you take each day. So they definitely go both ways. The common advice that you hear is fake it till you make it or some version of that. Right. And that's like, adopt this identity now, and then you'll be that kind of person in the future. And I don't necessarily have anything wrong with fake it till you make it. It's asking you to believe something positive about yourself, but it's asking you to believe something positive without having evidence for it. And we have a word for beliefs that don't have evidence. We call it delusion. You know, like your brain yeah, doesn't like sure. this mismatch between what you say you yeah. are and what you're actually doing. And so my encouragement is to let the behavior lead the way. To start with one push-up or one minute of meditation or one sales call or one email or whatever it is. And to let that small action provide evidence, be proof that in the moment you were that kind of person. I think at some level, true behavior change is really identity change. It's really getting you yep. to shift the story that you have about who you are and what's normal for you. And what we're ultimately hoping to get to is the point where you take pride in that aspect of your identity. You know, if you take pride in being a runner, then going out and going for a run is not as big of a deal as it is to somebody who's just getting started. It's kind of like, no, this is like part of who I am and what I normally do. That is not going to happen overnight. You can't just do it one time and then suddenly feel like, oh, this is, you know, a big part of yeah, who I am. Yeah. But, you know, you may not feel like you're a basketball player the first time that you go out and shoot free throws for five minutes. But if you go outside every day and shoot hoops for a little bit, at some point, maybe it's six months from now, a year from now, two years from now, there's some invisible threshold that you cross where you're like, well, I guess I kind of have to admit to myself that playing basketball is part of who I am. And yes, so yes. in that in that sense... We're, your identity is almost like a painting that's constantly being retouched. You're always sort of making edits to it with your choices each day and the habits that you perform. And if you yep. really want to paint something beautiful over time, I think you need to continue these small habits and keep casting votes for your desired identity. Yeah. And eventually you'll turn around and feel really good about the person that you shaped yourself into. And that's probably a moment when your identity starts to shift and you start to say, I am a runner. This is part of who I am. That, that's probably a moment of real momentum building in the behaviors, right? It, it just, it all gets easier. I think so. I think it's probably a true inflection point. And I think this is the real reason that habits matter, the deeper reason. You know, we often talk about habits as mattering because of the external results they'll get you. Hey, habits will help you make more money or get fit or reduce stress or be more productive. And look, that's true. Like habits can help you do all that stuff. And that's great. But I think the real reason that habits matter is that every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. They are the avenue through which you prove your identity to yourself. That, I think, is a much more meaningful thing in the long run. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, though. I mean, even though I've been running six or seven days a week now for 
years. Um, I still don't think of myself as a runner. Hmm. <laughs> right. I don't really think about myself as an author, which is interesting. Right, I, right, right, right. I identify yeah. more as an entrepreneur and still do. I now I kind of have to admit that I'm an author because the book exists, but right. um, it is interesting how we can do that to ourselves in some ways. To recap, we've learned the four laws of behavior change. Make it obvious, attractive, easy, and satisfying. When you want to form a new habit, just tick those boxes. If you want to zap a bad habit, invert those rules. Make that bad habit invisible, unattractive, difficult, and unsatisfying. Simple as they sound, those are the Newtonian laws that govern the mechanics of habit formation. And it was James's ability to isolate them that turned Atomic Habits into one of the best-selling books of the decade. So you'd think he wouldn't have any regrets, because what's there to regret when you've sold 15 million copies? But you'd be wrong. There is something James wishes he could change about Atomic Habits. It's one area that I, or one topic that I wish I had emphasized even more in the book than I did. What is that one area, that one topic? The answer, after the break. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Let's talk about habits and community, because I think, to me, this is really, really interesting. I mean... And, and it's another interesting two-way dynamic, as you were saying about identity. Like on the one hand, we have a tendency to behave like the people around us, right? So you say in the book, choosing what people you spend time with is a powerful part of making the behaviors you want to adopt attractive, right? Um, on the other hand, we often need to demonstrate the right behaviors in order to be accepted into a community, right? Um, and, and actually, now that I think about it, maybe these two dynamics are kind of one and the same. Like we we change our behaviors around other people because we want to be accepted. The social influence on our habits is dramatic. It's one area that I, or one topic that I wish I had emphasized even more in the book than I did. Mm, I, I did write about it, but I just think since publishing the book, I think it has an even larger influence than I um, than I realized. So the way I would describe it is that we are all part of multiple tribes. Some of those groups or tribes are like large, like what it means to be American or what it means to be French. Some of them are small, like what it means to be a neighbor on your street or a member of the local CrossFit gym or something like that. But all of these groups that we belong to, they all have a set of shared expectations for how you act, a set of social norms. 
And when your habits align with the social norms of the group, they're pretty attractive to stick to. They're like really compelling. You know, it's like it helps you fit in and belong. And when your habits go against the grain of the expectations of the group, they're pretty unattractive. It, it feels like you're adding conflict to the situation. And so as best you can, you want to join groups where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. Because if it's normal in that group, then it's going to be really motivating for you to stick to it. And we don't even realize how pervasive this force is on our habits. Like, yeah, I could walk outside my house, for example, and look across the street and maybe my neighbor is mowing their lawn. And I, I might think like, oh, I need to cut the grass too. And you'll stick to that habit mm -hmm. of mowing your lawn for five or 10 or 30 years, like however long you live in the house, you know, and we wish we had that level of consistency with some of our other habits. And it's like, why do you do it? Partially you do it because it feels good to have a clean lawn, but mostly it feels good to have a clean lawn because we're going to be judged by the other people in the neighborhood for being the sloppy one, you know? So it's actually that social expectation that drives the behavior. And there are many, many examples like this throughout life. And so at some root level, this comes back to our deep human need, our desire to bond and connect. You know, yep. humans are yep. very social creatures and we all want to be a part of something, even if it's just your little family unit. And so if people are forced to choose between, you know, I have habits that I don't really love, but I fit in, I belong, I'm part of something, or I have the habits that I want to have, but I'm cast out, I'm ostracized, I'm criticized. Well, a lot of the time, the desire to belong will overpower yeah. the desire yeah. to improve. And so you really need to try to get those things aligned so that you're not having to choose between, am I fitting in or am I building the habits that I want to have? And if you can get those two forces together, then you have this kind of, you actually have like a powerful tailwind rather than a headwind because the people around you are doing the thing you want to do and you're be kind of pulled along naturally. When we choose friends and future friends, we're choosing the kind of people we want to become. Yeah. In a lot of ways, when you choose your friends, you're choosing your future habits. Well, James, what do you see as the downside of habit formation? One of the downsides is that the more ingrained a habit becomes, the less you start to question whether it's still serving you or not. And life is dynamic. It's not static. And so yeah. most habits have a period where maybe they're really useful, but then they may outlive their usefulness. And that was a hard thing for me to learn. It was kind of easy for mm, me to realize, oh, I should not do things that are a waste of time or not do things that are unproductive or something like that. Like that, that wasn't that hard to convince myself of, but it was much harder to realize, oh, actually this used to be a really good habit. It still is kind of assigned the label of good habit in my mind, but it has outlived its usefulness. It's not, it's not a good habit for me in this current season. And so that may be the case, you know, like maybe a habit just lives in a certain zone in your life or a certain season and it's time to move on from it. The second thing that is a potential downside is that as you repeat these habits again and again, you start to establish an identity. And previously we were talking about, well, that's a really good thing. We want to try to reinforce our identity. And the more that you believe in that identity, the easier it becomes to perform the habit. And as you're cultivating a new good habit, that is true. That's something that could benefit you. But in the long run, the tighter that you cling to an identity, the harder it becomes to grow beyond it. 
And so you can think of examples of, right, right. you know, the surgeon who has done it 20 years a certain way and has gotten a bunch of good results for their patients. And then a new technology comes along and changes the way that you could do the surgery. And they say, oh, well, I'm not doing it like that. I've always done it this way. And then five years from now, they find themselves behind the curve and getting worse outcomes than their peers because the new technology has moved things forward. And so progress to a large degree requires unlearning. It requires you to upgrade yeah, and expand your beliefs. It requires you to continually revisit the identity that you have and question whether that identity is continuing to serve you. And we yep. all find ourselves in situations where we still have beliefs that we're holding on to and stories that we're clinging to that aren't really that helpful. And they can be all sorts of things like, I'm not good at remembering directions. I'm bad at math. I'm the type of person that doesn't remember people's names. I have a sweet tooth. You can you can come up with all sorts of stories that as you tell yourself that, you're reinforcing the identity and it becomes a little harder to do something that doesn't align with that. And so the process of cultivating, shaping, and evolving your identity is an endless one. It's a practice, not yep. like a finish line. And so if you can come into it with that lens and realize that yep. there is no there there to get to, there is just a process to continue to follow and a series of questions to continue to ask and refine, you can see yourself as this kind of endlessly evolving project and let life unfold before you rather than worrying about getting to a particular finish line. I'll tell you my biggest concern with 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 habits as I get incrementally better at them, and I can mm -hmm. tell that in the next several months, I think I'm going to get even better at them having just read your book <laughs> and had this conversation, is that, you know, it's an incredible, powerful way to kind of automate to some degree sections of my life. But because it's a little bit like running an algorithm, I'm not available <laughs> in the same way, right? I'm not present in the way that I am when I'm not in sort of habit stack mode. You know, I worry sometimes that if I, if I let my sort of habit formation control too much of my life, mm. I'm going to lose some of the spontaneity and presence that's part of my kind of humanity on some level. Is that, is that something that, that comes very, up for you? It's a very common thing that people will bring up. Oh, I, you know, I don't want to pigeonhole myself or feel like a robot. What about being spontaneous and creative and having space for freedom and flexibility? And my reply is usually twofold. I mean, first, it's certainly, um, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but I don't actually know anybody who's like, you know, I just know myself. Once I get going on this, I'm going to be so consistent that I'll never miss. I'm just going to be like so, you know, robotic with it that it just isn't going to, you know, be a problem. Um, but let's take it seriously for a second and say like, okay, maybe that is a potential challenge. The way that I view it is that habits don't restrict freedom. They create it. It's actually the people who have the worst financial habits that are always wondering where the next dollar is going to come from or the people who have the worst reading and learning habits that always feel like they're behind the curve, or the people who have the worst fitness habits that feel like they don't have enough energy. And so certainly I don't think your entire day needs to be scheduled. People would probably be surprised to see how much of my calendar is unstructured. I My favorite yeah. thing is like a blank yeah. calendar day. Maybe I got one call, like almost nothing to work around. But I have a few pillar habits, working out, writing, reading a little bit, that I try to fit into a couple hours of my day and then I let the other 20 hours kind of cascade naturally. And I know that if I really nail it with those core things, that I have the structure and the accountability in my life that is going to give me 
the capacity to have the freedom and flexibility that I want. Amazing. James Clear, thank you for your time today. Thank you for writing this book and, and doing all that you do. Such an interesting conversation. Great. Thanks, Rufus. Here's maybe the bigger reason why Atomic Habits has sold 15 million copies. It's an alternative framing for what ails us. A better framing. Maybe the problem is not that you and I are lazy, hopelessly disorganized, lacking in follow-through, not to fully discount this possibility. No, these are stories we tell ourselves. We are, in the end, not what we think, but what we do. Nothing more than the sum of our actions. And those can be changed with very small, easily executed incremental steps. It's just not that hard. That's the cool part. I have now gone two consecutive weeks with daily journaling, sometimes just a few lines, and occasionally I go a day or two without a glass of wine. Small incremental steps, I'll keep you posted. I'd love to hear about the habit changes that you aspire to and how it's going. Just look for me, Rufus Criscom, on LinkedIn. You'll see my post about this episode. Let's discuss in the comments below. And if you have ideas for future classic guests, we're all ears. Send us an email at podcast at nextbigideaclub.com. Today's episode was produced by Caleb Bissinger, sound designed by Mike Toda. Our theme music is by Costa Galanopoulos, and it was performed by Nathaniel Wolkstein. One of the best habits we've formed in the past few years is the good habit of working with the brilliant folks at the LinkedIn Podcast Network. We'll be back with a regular episode of The Next Big Idea next week, and we'll have another classics episode in February featuring Kim Scott, author of Radical Candor. I hope you'll join us for both. I'm Rufus Griscom. More to come.